Okay, well, welcome, dear listeners, to another edition of the Jacobs Podcast. Today we are talking about koalas, and joining me for this is Vic Jerskus, author of The Great Koala Scam, um, and with a rather provocative subtitle, Green Propaganda, Junk Science, Government Waste and Cruelty to Animals. Vic, welcome to the Jacobs Podcast. Thanks very much, Sean. Excellent. So I thought this would be quite an interesting discussion because, of course, the book is, you know, of course, largely about koalas, but I think it intersects a lot of other issues as well. So whether it's environmental activism, um, you know, backburning, fuel loads for vegetation, even looking at our history, you know, 1788 and explorer history and so on. So it's quite a wide ranging discussion, I think, and touches on a lot of different points. But I thought I'd just firstly start uh, with you, Vic. You're an ecological historian. Where are you from and how did you actually get into this line of work? Uh, well, I, I live at Eden on the south coast of New South Wales, near the Victorian border. And um, uh, I, I got into the ecological history as a result of me work as a forester because, um, uh, you know, you'd be aware that, that since the... Um, the rise of environmentalism in the 80s, I suppose, that um, there's been any amount of uh, debate and dispute about uh, the correct way to manage the environment. And um, mm. and uh, there's been a lot of junk science, as, as I say in the subtitle of my book. And um, really to get to the, um, uh, to get to the heart of what's, what used to go right and what's now mostly going wrong, um, you have to look back to history to see how things were and how things changed. Yeah, absolutely. And I would note, um, just as a sort of brief aside in the book, there's a lot of, you know, um, I guess historical observation. We'll cover some of that from various early explorers. Um, you know, obviously the science and things like that weren't, wasn't as mature at the time. Um, other than sort of historical accounts from explorers what other sorts of things do you look at as a ecological historian when you're looking at these things from the past yeah well i've got to take issue with something that you just said about the science not being so mature in the past sure i think the science was was a fair bit more mature in the past than, than what it is currently or what the the majority of um supposedly scientific information that you see um in both in in journals and in the media, um, the, when when I was a young fella, one of my first science teachers was um, uh, she was a scientist that, that got a, a PhD in um, in the Sorbonne. Uh, she trained under Marie Curie, mm. and um, she told she told me that um, uh, that that going to university wasn't about learning things it was about learning how to think mm. and and um the scientific method is uh as all true scientists know the scientific method is about observing what's happening thinking about it mm. uh formulating some hypotheses about about you know how it does work mm. and then testing them but but most of the people that seem to be coming out of university these days they, they've been they've been taught a lot of stuff that's wrong. They haven't been taught how to think. They seem to think that um, a science is about uh, uh, you know a, a 
a theory popping into your head and then you're gathering data to bloody confirm it. Excuse me for the mm. language there. That's okay. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so so um, uh, to me, the majority of what's coming out of science is not scientific at all because it's 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 basically uh, gathering data to try and and support a position rather than looking at what's going on and trying to come up with an explanation. Mm, yeah, fair enough. And I think, you know, obviously that's a sort of a prevailing assumption there on how mature science used to be on, on my um, sort of behalf. But then even today, um, I think you talk to anyone about koalas in Australia, so just turning now to the topic itself. But And like, there's a belief that's very widespread out there that the koala population's teetering on the edge of extinction and we'll get into all that but i just wanted to cover some basics first because i think it just helps to explain your position once you get the fundamentals um down pat so i just wanted to ask firstly what food do koalas feed on yeah well, they eat um <clears throat> they eat uh, soft young leaves and shoots of, of eucalypts um uh, and particular species in particular areas um the the um, I'll, I'll have to start with with eucalypt physiology. Mm -hmm. um, mature eucalypts, uh, they you know in in various seasons they they produce a flush of soft young shoots, and then as the shoots develop into mature leaves, they withdraw nutrients and moisture, and so the normally developed mature leaves on eucalypt trees are hard and um, uh, not very nutritious and full of um, like protective substances to stop things eating them. So um, in, in, a, in a healthy, mature forest, uh, koalas occupy very large home ranges and they travel long distances to find, uh, you know, flushes of soft, of soft juicy growth, which is, uh, you know, what they need to... Um, you know, to, to be able to digest and and, um, and grow healthily. Just very quickly then, just to clarify then, would you say that, so tender, juicy, nutritious leaves, so they're actually, those things are quite a rare commodity in eucalypt forests, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. In, in healthy, mature eucalypt forests, there's not a lot of soft young growth. Mm. So koalas occupy home ranges of around about 100 hectares and, they're, you know, they're, they're solitary animals, and, and an area that size in a forest has, um, uh, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of trees. So, mm. so, um, like when Europeans came to Australia, they didn't see any koalas. Mm, mm. They didn't. They didn't know anything about koalas. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, quite interesting, because um, some of the sort of maps or things that you read it's kind of almost the other way around that they were tended to be thriving when that's that's not the case but um just to just to cover off on more basics there the, the, so um it, it's almost like there's an iron and you know the more sort of delved into your book and read some of your stuff it's almost that healthier forests technically mean less koalas is that right yeah that's absolutely right but but uh, the the whole issue is that more is not better. Mm. Um, you know, scientists, uh, well, a lot of scientists these days don't understand about carrying capacity. Mm. But um, if you if you want healthy 
stable populations, mm. um, you know, they, they have to be in a, in a healthy, stable environment. And, and you know, the, what, what's happened, uh, the reason people think there were so many koalas at the time of European settlement is because um, we, we basically disrupted Aboriginal management that, that was, was mm. um, maintaining healthy ecosystems. And uh, got lots of dense young growth of, um, of food for koalas and, and um, uh, other things like, you know, for example, kangaroos and emus that, that rely on, on healthy, open, grassy forests, mm. um, they, they disappeared from a lot of areas. Mm. And And so I guess the other point then as well is well, I mean, I'm just going to ask you about drought. So does that, you know, on a, as a general rule, create more or less koalas when we experience drought? Uh, well, in healthy ecosystems, drought doesn't make any difference because uh, all Australian uh, plants and animals are adapt, adapted mm. to drought. It's, mm. a, it's a normal, natural thing. Mm. And um, the, the, uh, the, the reason that, uh, that koalas have crashed recently during the millennium drought is because they've been in unsustainably high densities in unnatural ecosystems and and um, uh, inevitably uh, you know when things are out of balance you've got too much of, of anything that uh, when hard times come along they crash yeah sure um, and then there's this key term that pops up that for people who aren't sort of across this sort of thing, um, eruption. Can you just explain that, Vic? What does that actually mean in co in koala populations? Well, eruption in any any population means that uh, there's a, there's a sudden increase in numbers in, into unsustainably high numbers, and um, uh, the yeah, it, um, it's funny the the, the way that uh, people that. Mm consider themselves to be scientists they um they recognize eruptions of psyllids for example in in sick trees uh as a bad thing and and uh you know spend millions of dollars in researching how to try and prevent them mm. but they regard eruptions of koalas as a good thing yes fair enough so um i guess i think you actually mentioned this but it's not politically correct to recognise koalas as an eruptive species, which you say in plain English is a pest. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Mm, fair enough. Yeah, so um, coming back to the, you know, the idea that there was millions of koalas, mm. uh, you know, before, before Europeans arrived, that, uh, millions of koalas happened um, 100 years after Europeans arrived, when, when they erupted. Mm. In, in dense young forest and declining paddock trees, the um, uh, like koalas didn't live in the in the open grassy woodlands where Europeans sought to you know establish farms and you know graze graze cattle and so forth. Mm. Um, koalas didn't live there because there were not enough trees and they were mostly healthy and they had hard dry mature leaves that couldn't sustain koalas now after after europeans established pastures and those paddock trees got sick and 
and the the dense young forest grew up in the foothills and so forth. Well, koalas bred up and they moved into the um, into the you know retained trees in pastures, and now um, ecologists think that that they're they're um, high quality habitats that they're where koalas they're the places where koalas always lived and and um, the reason that koalas have declined in the drought and so forth is because we've cleared most of those areas or you know it's it's exactly the opposite koalas didn't live there Mm. then when uh, when we developed pastures and so forth koalas moved in and then the first time that um we had a severe drought, the Federation drought, in the you know the first decade mm. of the 20th century. Um, the trees crashed and the koalas crashed with them, and people blamed shooting. You know the reason that mm. the mm. reason that there was a big uh, fur industry and the, lots of people were shooting koalas was because the, they the, they had erupted and they were in plagues and they were starving, mm. and and the people that were shooting them didn't. They weren't nasty, cruel people that uh, you know that book delight in killing cute little animals. They were, they were responding to uh, to an eruption of koalas and disease, and you know koalas were dying from the drought. Well, uh, just as a brief aside, I'm, I'm from um, Adelaide originally, and I remember Kangaroo Island. Um, there being a sort of explosion in the population there. Are you familiar with that? case Vic I'm sure you are but maybe it'd be useful to just give some context there was it a similar situation on Kangaroo Island? Yeah no ko- koalas weren't uh, weren't uh, living on Kangaroo Island at the time of European settlement mm. um, they, mm. they um, uh, like Kangaroo Island was separated from the from the mainland um, by rising sea levels with extreme climate change about, um, uh, I think, about 8,000 years ago. Mm. And um, it used to be, Kangaroo Island used to be inhabited by um, uh, Aboriginal people. I don't know whether, they're koala, whether, whether there were koalas there thousands of years ago. I, was, I haven't looked into it, but... Um, uh, but when when the sea levels rose and isolated the the island, will eventually uh, Aboriginal people died out. I don't know about koalas, mm. but um, anyway, the, they they erupted um, after um, there were um, eruptions of koalas in Victoria uh, in the. Uh, uh, now, hang on a minute. They they might uh, koalas were reintroduced or were introduced or reintroduced. I don't know which to to Kangaroo Island um, uh, in the I think the late nineteenth or the early twentieth century. But um, okay. but they they came from erupting erupting populations in in South Gippsland, in Victoria. Okay. Well, um, just going back again to this question about. Um you know, 1788, rival of the first fleet, and you know, um, you look at the sort of maps and and those sorts of things. Where do where how do people make those assumptions about um, the I guess how many koalas there were back then? Um, what are they kind of basing these maps on? Um, the numbers. Well, 
Yeah, they're all based on the on the millions of koala skins that were exported from the late 19th century. In other words, they're, they're basing their estimates on on the uh, the original numbers of koalas when Europeans arrived. The estimates are based on uh, numbers a hundred years later after they'd erupted widely, and after they they were uh, they were burned burn harvested for skins and so forth. There's no science logic or anything about it and the history's uh, exactly against it because um, none of the none of the explorers ever reported seeing koalas there's only one explorer that ever saw koalas it was Streslecki mm. and um, and he, he found them in um, uh, in dense young forest in South Gippsland and, and the reason there was dense young forest and koalas and no kangaroos or emus was because the um, uh, the Uendri people had been wiped out by smallpox mm. in the 1789 epidemic, and their country uh, was unmanaged. And the uh, you know the scrub grew out of the deep dark gullies. And um, when the inevitable bad weather and dry lightning storms come along, uh, there, that was probably the earliest megafire. Um, in Australia, and and um, the that uh, the you know mm. it, um, the scrub blew up, and the, the the you know the eucalypts germinated in the in the ash bed like like hairs on a cat's back. So mm. what what had been open grassy country turned into de- dense scrub with um, uh, and you know, soon after plagues and koalas erupted. And so Streslecki, he was, I think, in the 1840s, so I guess that's, that's you know, 50, half a century after um, the First Fleet. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but he actually, um, uh, like, there was, there was no European settlement uh, in in Victoria, what we now call Victoria at that stage. So, mm-hmm. so Strzelecki actually, um, uh, he was the first um, uh, European explorer in South Gippsland. Mm-hmm. But um, the first eruption of koalas that was noticed anywhere in Australia was 1836 west of Sydney in the, in the foothills of the Blue Mountains where um, Assistant Surveyor Govett uh, you might have heard of Govett Sloop in the Blue Mountains. It's named after mm. Govett, but um, yeah. uh, he, he described he described an eruption of koalas in the um, in the foothills of the Blue Mountains in 1836, and that was after um, you know Aboriginal burning had been disrupted and dense young stringy bark forest grew up in the foothills of the Blue Mountains, and and koalas erupted in those dense young forests. Um. And so I guess the next question then is, Vic, do we have, you know, in your view, you talked about a healthy balance here, but so, you know, what people, I suppose, really want to know is do we have too many koalas or too little in Australia? Yeah, definitely too many koalas. Um, we, could have, we could have unnaturally high but sustainable uh, densities of koalas if we manage them um, in in eucalypt plantations and and regrowth forests if we if we managed um, uh, healthy plantations and forests using um, 
uh, mild burning, uh, we could still have much higher than natural populations of koalas. So, they'd, you know, they'd still be visible. Mm. But um, if we manage, uh, uh, like, mature native forests, uh, if we manage them properly with mild burning and maintain them as healthy forests, uh, we can only have very low densities of koalas. Like I said, about you know, 100 hectares per koala. Right. But, but they're sustainable, mm. and and um, uh, like you know, koalas are, are very, very specifically uh, evolved uh, to live at low densities in in healthy forests because like they've got um, uh, well, the males have got you know, very loud voices that uh, they can use to attract females in the breeding season. Uh, they've all, all sexes have got uh, um, very big, efficient um, olfactory systems so they can sniff out good food uh, from a long distance. Uh, they, they're quite mobile animals. As I said before, they get around, uh, you know, in, in, in nature they move every night seeking out the, you know, the odd bit of fresh browse wherever they can get it. Um, <clears throat> you know, they're, they're perfectly designed uh, to live how they live in low densities, and if they are in low densities, you can't see them. The explorers didn't see them. And, um, you know, modern ecologists have turned that around to, uh, to say that we don't see koalas as poor habitat and there's something wrong. But um, they're wrong. Well, that's if a, you don't see mm. koalas, uh, oh, go, sorry, go on. Finish that if, point. Um, if you if you if you see koalas, there's something wrong, because they're, they're a forest. They're, you know, they're naturally a forest-dwelling animal, and if you've got one koalas in a hundred hectares with thousands of trees, they're invisible. Mm. Well, it seems that the sort of policy response, though, from governments really is uh, they. You know, wanting a visible population, though, so it's kind of um, yeah, yeah, which is um. But look, maybe first, I just want to go back to, um, you know, I guess the perception around that modern ecologists have created. So, you know, you bring a very unique position to this, and you know, you've tried to present your findings in various for forums. But, um, Vic, how have you been received in the scientific community? Uh, not very well. Um, like the, 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 there's not really a scientific community. There's uh, there's there's just as much division in science as in any uh, any other part of the community. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a majority. Uh, there's a uh, let me call it the academic community rather than the scientific community. Sure. There's a majority in the academic community that that take that um, that unscientific perspective that I was talking about earlier on. They don't understand science. They don't understand observation, thinking, um, hypothesising, and testing the hypothesis. They they they're all on about um, uh, gathering data to try and support their preconceived ideas, and um, and and. Uh, you know the the current uh, um, preoccupation with modelling is a is a um, uh, is a sort of a symptom of that. That uh, you know 
models are based on assumptions and they put wrong assumptions in there and they build models that um, uh, that that support their point of view but don't actually describe what's going on. A model is supposed to be something that, you know, shows you in a simple uh, sort of format about how the how ecology works and, and um, uh, most models that are published these days are dead wrong. Um, with koalas, they, they start from the assumption that uh, high populations are natural and then they, um, uh, you know, they, they come up with all these ideas. Basically, uh, the, the majority of modern ecology seems to be driven by people with a wilderness mentality. They think that, um, you know, that, that people are a blot on the environment and everything that people do is wrong, and, and therefore it must be something that people are doing that keeps koalas invisible. Um, when, you know, when, when Aboriginal people were managing the uh, healthy ecosystems, koalas were invisible. They, you know, they just simply can't accept that. Um, and they want to find up, find out reasons why uh, European um, <coughs> a settlement of Australia has caused ecological problems and caused koalas to disappear when they haven't, in fact, they've, they've erupted. Mm. I guess it just fits a kind of lazy narrative. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, you see that, especially what you say on the models, the modelling front, um, you know, that you can see that a lot in, you know, a whole range of different, um, I guess, examples when it comes to environmental impact. Uh, it has reminded recently um, about um, Equinor and their, so this is the, um, in, in the South Australian Bight and their proposal to um, establish offshore drilling there. And I just remember, because Fred Paul's covered this um, quite extensively, but um, there was a diagram out there about a hundred different worst case scenarios and, you know, immediately um, this is, you know, like a map comes out about the bite and, you know, the whole thing is, is covered and, and it looks like an absolute doomsday scenario. But, you know, for that to actually happen, um, you know, they'd have to actually drill 50 oil wells and, you know, experience dozens of different patterns simultaneously. So it would actually almost be near impossible. But when you put out a model or, you know, you show a map or something like that, that just shows that, um, you know, it's it's something that's easily digestible, and I think Vic cogs into that um, kind of assumption that's very easy to make um, about, I guess, us ruining the environment and you know humans doing a you know an overwhelmingly negative thing for the environment, and it just creates this sort of dynamic where um, you know there's again there's just you can observe this across a range of areas, but you can definitely see that in in the work that you've been you've looked into as well. Yeah, it's it's more than um, uh, laziness. It's it's quite deliberate. Uh, uh, the majority of modelling is intended, as I said before, to mm. to support a particular perspective. And um, as far as koalas go, I mean, it's a, they've been quite deliberately used to try and um, uh, you know to try and influence land management and to try and. Mm. Uh, you know, lock up more land in reserves and so forth. And, uh, you know, it's been quite a deliberate process that um, 
you know, people are using misinformation to, um, to you know, try and try and change the world to mm. suit their their worldview, um, but it's got nothing to do with science. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, tremendously unfortunate. It must be quite um, disappointing looking at how things have, you know, and as this always sort of. I mean, I I think you sort of noted from the eighties, nineties onwards, but. Is there a point in time, Dick, that you can sort of go back to where things sort of really started to change um, when things moved away from science and more into advocacy? Yeah, there's there's a um, uh, there's a history that goes further back than that. Uh, you, to, to understand um, what's happening, what's going wrong in Australia today, you need to go back to the um, uh, the early early foresters when um, when um, the forest services were established in the early 20th century um, they were established by foresters who, who were trained in Europe and they didn't understand fire mm. and they didn't they didn't realize that you know that mild fire was absolutely critical uh, essential part of, of uh, Australian ecology mm. so they tried to suppress fires and things went really bad uh, by the by the middle of the 20th century. We were having uh, plagues of all sorts of things that eat trees. We were having megafires, um, uh, like we had uh, a million hectares burnt in a, in one solid mass of fire in Victoria in, in 1939. Um, we had we had insect plagues in the in the hydroelectric catchments and what were being developed as hydroelectric catchments in the, in the Australian Alps. So, um, there was uh, like thousands of hectares of, uh, of hydro catchments sprayed with, um, with dangerous insecticides in, in diesel oil to control these insects that were erupting because we, weren't, we were excluding fire mm. from the forests. And um, uh, in coastal New South Wales, um, psyllids erupted and, and bellbirds, um, they eat psyllids, so of course they erupted as well, so bellbirds extended their range. Um, uh, the, by 1961, when they had um, uh, four towns completely destroyed by fire in Western Australia, and uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of hectares are burnt in megafires. Foresters woke up and they realised that um, uh, you know that we need to manage the bush with with mild burning, not to try and exclude fire. So so things changed, and in the 60s um, uh, they started trials of aerial ignition to try and make uh, mild burning more more extensive and cheap and, and efficient. And um, and things started to improve both on the bushfire front and the forest health front. But then by the 1980s, with the rise of the environmental movement, and they, um, you know, they dreamt up these ideas that because everything that that uh, whitefellas do is bad, uh, that you know burning must be bad, and it's gonna, you know, it's gonna harm the environment. They they didn't look at history. They didn't look at the or even prehistory, you know, the fact that, that that's how Aboriginal people have been managing 
right across the country for at least 40,000 years. They yeah. threw all that out the window on the basis of these on the basis of these new theories they dreamt up that if you burn too often you're going to you're going to muck up the environment. And so mm. burning reduced and and we got a uh, you know an upsurge in in pests and and megafires and so forth and and um, it led to the to the unprecedented situation that we've had recently in 2009-20 season uh, but uh, it's not unprecedented weather or anything like that the only thing that's unprecedented is the the uh, level of three-dimensionally continuous fuel right across the landscape that, that's been causing firestorms and um, you know we had uh, just as bad droughts and weather uh, was r- reported um, in the 1790s when when uh, Aboriginal people were still burning all around the northwest of Sydney in the sandstone country. And we had, um, uh, you know, fires going there all the time under extreme conditions, just as bad as 2019-20, and uh, there wasn't any real problems. Mm. Um, now, now people are saying the problem's climate change. It's, it's obviously got nothing to do with climate change because... We've had the same conditions before under different management. We haven't had the same problems. Yeah. No, very interesting. Were you writing your book when um, over the summer you would have been sort of putting the final touches on, yeah. on it, I imagine? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so if, uh, get, get, if you want to get back to koalas for a minute, mm-hmm. like, um, uh, you know, you, you'll... Um, uh, you'll recall that uh, you know before the fires, um, there was all the stuff about uh, koalas were uh, going to be extinct by 2050 because of clearing and climate change. Oh yes. And then, um, uh, and then, then, then when these uh, these horrific and un- unnecessary fires um, exploded in the in the unprecedented fuels that we've got now. Uh, there was koalas everywhere. There was, you know, tens of thousands of koalas were, were burnt, reported to be burnt in the fires. So, you know, the the um, the supposedly scientific story is not real scientific. It just changes to suit the circumstances. Yes. Yeah, you can see the inconsistency there for sure. Um, so, yeah. Vic, what's the... I mean, what's what kind of policy... Uh, you know, again, I think each level of government is doing absolutely kind of everything they can to um, solve this problem, quote unquote. Um, but you know, what's the policy goal here? You know, we've talked about a balanced population. Is, is what sort of instruments of policy do decision makers or politicians need to actually um, deploy to get us towards this balanced population? Yeah, well, the the biggest environmental problem in Australia, uh, and the reason for all the disasters we're having, all, all the supposed environmental disasters we're having, is is the wilderness mentality that that people don't belong in the bush. But um, people manage the bush for for at least forty thousand years right across Australia. Like people arrived in Australia sixty at least sixty five thousand years ago, and basically the whole of the place was under. Uh, under human management by about 40,000 years ago. And, um, and uh, you know, the people people survived through extreme climate change um, without any boots or overalls or fire engines or anything like that. 
um, you know, everything was the, uh, the we had health, healthy ecosystems that were maintained by people. And uh, the philosophy and the policies these days are to exclude people. If you just shut everything up, lock it up, um, uh, you know, nature will look after itself. And that's not how it works. Lock, lock it up and let it burn is the, is the biggest problem um, with our policies at the moment. And like, for example, the, the national forest policy, um, it's, it's based on, you know, we have to have... Uh, well, about 15% of all our different ecosystems reserved, you know, un, un, basically untouched by humans. Um, but they they can't even, the policy makers and the so-called scientists that are advising them can't even understand that the, the things that they're locking up aren't even natural ecosystems because when we took Aboriginal management out, they changed and they became dysfunctional and dangerous and unhealthy and that's why we're having megafires that's why we're having plagues of um you know various insects and mistletoes and parasites and things in the forests um it, it just doesn't work so policy needs to change to recognize that uh, uh you know human beings are part of the environment and and human management is absolutely critical to uh to maintain uh, a um, safe and healthy environment. And, you know, you do note as well, Vic, that, uh, you know, part of it, of, of course, is that, that wilderness mentality and, and how much government policy is, is, and I think you write about, you write this, you know, is unduly influenced by voters, you know, who really don't have any connection with the bush. And I think that's something that's just becoming uh, more and more pronounced with time. Absolutely, that um, the um, uh, you know the, the the rise of environmentalism in the eighties uh, it happened at the same time as um, uh, you know people were leaving the bush in droves. You had uh, uh, you know mechanisation and stuff in the bush. You had people um, moving to the cities. Um, you know, to get employment in manufacturing and so forth. Um, and, you know, the people once in the cities and removed from the bush, um, they just simply can't appreciate how the environment works. And um, then, then you have these, um, you have these academics that, uh, uh, that have never worked in the bush, they've never used fire, they don't know anything about it, all they've got is silly theories in their heads. Um, they, they simply don't understand and they give bad advice to governments and, um, and uh, you know, they're, they're surrounded by all these people in the cities with, with no real attachment experience or knowledge of how the environment should work and uh, that's where all the votes are, so that's where all the policy comes from. Mm. And it's unfortunate because these are the loudest voices too, and not just on this issue, but, you know, obviously across a range of issues as well. Yeah, it's unfortunate, all right. Like, um, uh, going back a few years, people used to talk about the the infamous gerrymander in, in Queensland where mm. the Joe Bielke-Peterson's government was, was sustained by... Um, uh, you know, by a, a supposedly unfair distribution of, um, mm. uh, you know, of, 
of electoral uh, numbers. Mm. And um, uh, to me, that was, you know, it, it wasn't that unfair, really. It was, it was given people a say, people in, in um, uh, you know, dispersed in, in agricultural communities, people that, that had a big stake in how, how things should be managed. And 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 also a, a big um, a big input into Australia's um, uh, economy. Mm. Um, they, they were getting they were getting a, a say that they're not getting these days. Mm. And um, uh, you know a lot of the uh, uh, well, a lot of the problems. The biggest problem again, as I say, in. Um, uh, you know, Australian in the Australian environment is is this problem of of, uh, of mega fires and and uh, eucalypt decline and eruptions of some species and decline of others that depend on open, safe, healthy country. They're the real rare and endangered species. The the ones that we're really losing are the ones that uh, uh, that are disappearing as the scrub takes over the the uh, the environment. And um, uh, yeah, there's a. I, I suppose the the um, the ecological environmental imbalance is, to me, is partly based on a social imbalance where people that that don't understand the environment live in an unnatural environment. They decide, you know, how how the environment gets managed. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Environmental imbalance driven by societal or social imbalance um do you think though that mild burning and you know indigenous land management practices are back on the agenda or at least back into the into the public eye in a way that they haven't been in the past after the summer because you know i think a lot of people probably wouldn't have been aware of 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 mild burning for example or um again indigenous land management practices or vegetation practices and burning um before the bushfires, but it seems to be that these techniques are getting a bit more airtime now. Would you agree with that? Not really, not not um, not proportionately, Sean. Mm. The um, the problem is is that that they are getting air because so many people have been affected. Mm. But but the um, the provi- the prevailing view, the wrong view, is getting even more air because um, mm. when you get the um, when you get for example, the, all the ex-fire chiefs, um, you know, are writing to the Prime Minister and saying we, we need millions millions more dollars for water bombers and things like that. That uh, You know, it's all about climate change and, mm-hmm. and we can fix it with, with more money for water bombers. The, the, the problem has developed as a result of the ex-fire chiefs diverting resources away from land management mm. towards emergency response. Mm. Emergency response can't possibly deal with um, uh, with uh, megafires because they're not they got nothing to do with climate change. They've got all everything to do with three dimensionally continuous fuel that explodes in extreme conditions. We have always had and always will have extreme weather conditions, but when we had the land managed pro- properly by Aboriginals, uh, we didn't have megafires. <coughs> Mm. Like for example, the um, um, the uh, char- char- charcoal concentrations in sediment cores are a, a rough index, rough index of megafires in the landscape, and um, 
there was an unprecedented spike in charcoal deposition across 70,000 years um, occurred um, after European settlement when when we disrupted Aboriginal burning, and um, then there was a then there was a pronounced decline um, in the from the from the mid 20th century, and um, uh, the, the increase the recent increase in megafires as a result of um, uh, reduction of of mild burning um, hasn't yet been measured in charcoal. Uh, records and sediments because they haven't they haven't done the calls yet that have, you know that have had that recent record incorporated and all right Vic well we just sort of moving towards the end um, I know you mentioned at the beginning that a lot of young people I guess a lot of young you know scientists or even just scientists in general but you know I always try to think with an eye to the future on the podcast wherever we can um, they're taught learning you know they're learning what to think and not how to think is there any other advice you want to maybe just impart on some younger listeners out there who are interested in informed debate or discussion yeah yeah always always look before you uh before you form an opinion you know have have a look try and observe what's going on around you before you before you form an opinion and and um you know, don't rely on others to to form opinions for you. When you've when you've had a look at that um, at what what you think you can see happening, um, uh, uh, then then look at other people's opinions and and uh, on both sides and and judge uh, judge the opposing opinions according to what you think you've seen. Mm. Um, a big problem for for young people is that is that yeah um, you can't like retrospective observations never really solved any problem or issue. Mm. The, you know the battle the battle I'm having with um, with people about oh well uh, like uh, sorry there's two different themes I should if mm. we've got time sure sure that that I, that I should cover. Firstly, as as I started on, historical observations are so important, and a lot of scientists, modern scientists, think they know better than the people who were there and actually did the observations at the time. Mm. So I've had um, I've had papers rejected where I've, where I've quoted uh, the uh, the observations of Surveyor General Mitchell mm. about um, about Aboriginal burning and how things change when we disrupted it. I've had uh, papers rejected by supposedly scientific journals on the basis of reviewers that's, that that said um, things like um, uh, well they referred to Mitchell's erroneous inferences mm. so the surveyor general that was there and was objectively reporting what he saw mm. was wrong because mm. it didn't fit with the modern scientists view of, of the world Incredible. So, so that's one that's one problem the, the other problem is that young scientists don't have the benefit of having seen things change. So again, well, I suppose it gets back to history again too. You've got to you've got to look at at, at reliable historical information rather than uh, modern so-called scientists' interpretation or or arguments against even 
uh, historical records. Um, so when you're weighing when you're weighing up opposing views, I think you've got to you've got to accept that um, uh, you know historical views put by people that uh, were there at the time count more than than um, retrospective interpretations by um, by people who have theories that differ from the the history. Mm. Um, <clears throat> The uh, and I think one of the uh, one of the other things, <clears throat> one of the other problems these days is that is that people um, aren't critical enough of models. They don't they don't look at the assumptions that are built into them, and they you know they they they're bamboozled by um, by statistics instead of in, in, you know instead of checking the validity of assumptions and. And um, you know how they compare against history. Yep, absolutely. Well, I think um, your book's a great testament to um, following all of those things, and I encourage everyone who's listening to to have a read. You've been actually incredibly unfortunate with the timing of the release, Vic. I know you haven't <laughs> had a, a launch because of um, all the restrictions in place, but um, where can um, people go to get a, a copy or, or read any more of your work? Yeah, well, if you if you if you look up Vic Jerskus on the um, uh, you know Google it or whatever, or if you look at, look up um, uh, Connor Court, the publisher, or um, the book title, The Great Koala Scam, I've also um, uh, produced a book back in 2015 called Firestick Ecology. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> yeah, so... Uh, and I'll put a link to uh, all of those in the show notes too, Vic, on the page, so people will have a, have a link to it um, as well. Oh, very good. Yeah. yeah, thanks for that, Sean. No problem. We'll yeah, be, and... Yeah. Um, no, go on. I was just going to say, well, look, that's been really insightful and in informative. Um, anything else you wanted to add... Um, before we sort of close out, oh, only only that it's been a great pleasure talking to you, Sean, and and uh, I really appreciate um, you know talking to young people that that uh, have an open and inquiring mind, and um, you know it's very frustrating to talk to people that um, think that um, you know because they've got a university degree or a PhD that they know everything, and. Um, uh, you know, I think people. I think you're a good example to young people that, um, uh, you know, inquiry and and um, uh, an open mindedness is absolutely critical. You know, if things are going to improve, mm -hmm. rather than people taking positions. Yeah, well, that's very kind of you to say, Vic. And again, I think your work's a uh, testament to, to that. And I encourage um, everyone to read more of your work and definitely get a copy of the book, The Great Koala Scam. Um, and again, I'll put um, a link to that book, uh, your other book, um, and then a few other articles that you've written that I've come across and anything else in the show notes as well. But um, Vic Jerskus, thanks very much for coming on the Jacobs podcast. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, no worries at all. Thanks very much, Sean.